we are collateral creatives. Uh, as she was explaining just a moment ago, we are a show that goes into non-Christian media to find aspects of God or aspects of his character. Because, just to explain, because we've not once ever explained what collateral creatives even means. Well, I think we have, we just haven't like said it maybe not like directly maybe not but not explicitly to to make sure that it's explicitly clear what we mean by collateral creatives there was a a strict like single thing that was created there was a film there was a book there was a tv show there was a song that was made but then there were other things that were created in the collateral there were things that people got out of it their own personal messages their byproducts basically yes and in our case we're trying to find the theological byproducts finding content that has some sort of theological background or theological application that wasn't initially designed for that. So if you haven't been able to pay attention to the show for until now, we've gone into things such as Harry Potter. Uh, we've gone into, let's see, Spider-Man. We've done uh, Minecraft, which Minecraft was all about uh, what, <laughs> how can you prove that God is the only one who could be in total sovereign control of the universe. And Minecraft being played by a child was the best explanation of why humans cannot be trusted with unlimited creative (laughs) technology. (laughs) Yeah, that was an interesting episode. (laughs) And it was one of the most factual episodes we've ever had in our entire lives. I mean, I don't know if it was the most factual, (laughs) but it was up there. So today, our our topic is actually something rather entertaining, mostly because we both are huge fans of this franchise, and we are sad that it's kind of over, but it's still it's still going. There's a new there's a new show. Oh yeah, there is. But it sucks. I haven't watched it. It's it's made for kids, and it takes place in the modern era. Oh. You know more Vikings. We are talking about today how to train your dragon. So cue the epic music. Exactly. So the really good thing about how to train your dragon in a lot of ways is first and foremost about, I mean, first we see the friendship develop between a human being and a dragon. Mm. Just kind of bottom line that's already cool enough as it is. Yeah, because everyone loves (laughs) dragons. Yeah. Unless you're that one kid that my uh, science teacher knew who got into an argument about where fire comes from and it was like does fire come from volcanoes or dragons and so my science teacher's kid got into a fight with this other kid about where fire came from and they were like duking it out on the playground and so that one kid i guess didn't like dragons but he's the only one out there i mean i would argue that they come from volcanoes because that's where dragons come from Interesting. I would, that's what See, I would say. <laughs> they resolved the conflict by saying that fire can come from both volcanoes and dragons. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, in How to Train Your Dragon, they kind of come from pretty much everywhere, but there is, yeah. in the third film, we do see that there's a hidden world of dragons, basically. Yeah. Oh, spoilers. Now, this is filled spoiler with spoilers. Spoiler warning. Spoiler territory. <laughs> As always, we talk about the, the media that we're covering in the episode, mm-hmm. so... Basically, everything we cover is spoilers. Now, it should be noted that most things that we actually go into usually have a, at least a couple years buffer. So if you're getting spoiled, spoiled it's kind of your own fault in a lot of ways. But, you know, if you do get spoiled and you're genuinely upset about it, you can talk to us later. We're probably not going to feel any remorse or regret. So yeah. I also <laughs> think it's worth mentioning that there is a book series. There is a book series. Yes. And we're not touching the book series because it's kind of on that level of book adaptations where there's ones that are really faithful to the books. Yes. And then there's ones that tried really hard and just don't. Mm -hmm. And then there's the ones that just kind of wildly go off on their own. And the How to Train Your Dragon ones (laughs) are kind of in that third category where they take the names and they take some of the ideas and then just kind of go off on their own (laughs) and do their own thing. And that's kind of super fun. Yes. Um, As far as book adaptations go, because, yeah. Mm -hmm. And with How to Train Your Dragon, it was actually really easy to, uh, to find theologically backed messages that we could pull, the problem was, was pinning down one. Because you've got things like, you know, a child trying to live up to a father, a friendship that's trying to maintain despite there being all sorts of bumps in the road, people getting hunted down, there's all these different aspects that you can come at. So whenever we were going into this episode, it was a matter of pinning down exactly what mm-hmm. we wanted to really target, what was the yeah. most important things to discuss. Um, but we're going to get into all that later. For now, we're just going to be st- keeping it structured as the episodes usually go. 
where we discuss what the actual content is, and then we're going to go into the people that made it. That's one of the best parts of this show is going in and recognizing the people that made your favorite things possible. Because there's many times where I've walked into a theater and I just kind of forget that it wasn't just magically generated, there was someone that actually made the show happen. So for How to Train Your Dragon, for those of you who are uninitiated and don't know what this film series is, first of all, shame on you. Second of all, the film series is fantastic. Probably some of the best storytelling that DreamWorks has ever had right there next to Shrek. <laughs> and with, with How to Train Your Dragon, How to Train Your Dragon has many moments where it's proving that DreamWorks still has the same fantastic storytelling as they did with Prince of Egypt. They push very hard for narratives that are still appropriate for kids, yet also capable of telling adult messages that you can actually go and search into and look into and find things that even if you watch it back maybe five years later after a little bit of maturity, you start noticing things you didn't notice before. Mm -hmm. It's so, a story that can grow with you. Exactly. And especially if you started out with the first one, it really did grow <laughs> with you. It did grow with you, <laughs> yeah. Like you grew up with the main characters. <laughs> Uh, the main plot of it being, of course, we have a young Viking boy named Hiccup, which I, it's just a hilarious sort of name because he's a hiccup of a character. Um, and he's trying to... That's actually to, kind of how he got it. Exactly, name. yeah. Uh, he tries to live up to the legacy of his father, Stoic, who is... Uh, he's basically a famous uh, Viking leader that has been fighting against dragons that have been stealing their livestock and burning their villages for years now. Like mm -hmm. three centuries, I think, is actually the timeline. Uh, yeah, I don't remember. I looked it up. Okay. <laughs> well, your job is the research anyway. Yes. So. Uh, and so whenever it came time for Hiccup to finally start training to be the new chief, Hiccup, he, he sucked at it. He was terrible. He didn't know how to fight. He was kind of a coward. And he's he just... just weak. He's just he's a, a shrimp. He, he's a weak, frail little boy. And so Hiccup ends up somehow developing a sort of passion for the dragons after he shoots down one of the most legendary dragons of all time, the Night Fury. Yeah, because the only thing that Hiccup has going for him is he's super smart. <laughs> and so his curiosity about the world and intelligence and inventiveness yes. uh, is what really is getting him through life at the moment, at least mm -hmm. when we first meet him, because he designs something that's able to shoot down what is ranked as like the most scary dragon. Yes. Like it's, it's, what is it? Class death, right? Like that's yeah. what it's class is in the actual dragon book. And so or it's a nightmare class. I don't, I don't remember, remember which one, but it yeah. was like a fancy, the scary one. Like it was <laughs> that night fury was one of the only ones in that category. Mm -hmm. And so when he shoots it down, he thinks that this is the moment that he can finally prove to his father that he's actually capable of being the chief. He's going to yeah. kill this night fury. He's going to finish it off. So what ends up being the case is he doesn't actually kill the night fury. He spares it and develops a friendship with it, which grows over the course of the next two films afterwards, pretty much teaching the entirety of the, this Viking nation on how to train their own dragons, how to incorporate them into their society, and then start actually generating some sort of friendly back and forth between a dragon culture and a human culture. And yeah. it develops all sorts of problems. They with go from hating dragons, killing them, and having dragons kill them too mm -hmm. to there being a cute like dragon cat lady um, yes <laughs> and i love her yes. she is an inspiration to us all <laughs> <laughs> um, i the, the old lady with the tiny dragons is just the funniest thing to me so good which actually that is a fun little note about how the dragons are actually designed for this film is that they actually share a lot of traits with cats like Kinda, yeah. a night like uh, like the Art design around yes. the dragons was inspired a lot by cats. Like the Night Fury uh, Toothless, that's the name that Hiccup gives this dragon, pretty much has, like, he, he, it purrs, it has the eye narrowing thing that cats mm -hmm. can do. Like, there, it's very much designed off of that. And I think that was on purpose. Oh, it definitely was on purpose. Yeah, because if, if you were to design something that everyone could relate to, it was more than likely going to be how cats interact with human beings. So, you know, reluctant existence, you know, reluctant uh, codependency. <laughs> yeah. If I remember correctly, I watched a behind the scenes at one point and they were talking about how like one of the main artists or one of the creators was watching their cat play. <laughs> and that was part of how they figured out how they wanted Toothless to look when he was being toothless, essentially. <laughs> um, and he's laughing because he knows what I'm talking about. Like, 
Toothless is just very playful. Very <laughs> playful. I don't want to say childish because there's so many moments, especially in the later movies, where he's so powerful and stands up for mm -hmm. so many. Like he stands up for Hiccup, he stands up for the rest of Dragon Kind. Basically. Um, so I don't want to like diminish him by <laughs> saying that he's childish, but he just has that like curiosity as well, mm -hmm. and I think that's part of why Hiccup and Toothless get along and have that spark that yeah. for their friendship is because they both are curious and are like, wait a second, we don't have to kill each other? <laughs> That's an option? Exactly. Um, and yeah. And honestly, the storytelling and the way that the film looks like how it is in its direction is very much tied to the people that were behind it. Mm -hmm. um, DreamWorks very frequently will be able to pick up people that aren't part of, act, like they weren't actually part of DreamWorks. Like they're the ones that made the movie, but they often will pull in people who are up top that are from people like Disney. Uh, yeah. And in this case, it's actually rather impressive. We had, one of the writers was a man named Chris Sanders. Uh, you don't know him by name, but you know him by every single movie that he's done, including Lion King, Aladdin, Mulan, the list goes on right now, like Beauty and the Beast, uh, Leroy, Lilo and Stitch, they also did Leroy and Stitch. He did both of those things. And eventually he got into How to Train Your Dragon, and I mean, even though he didn't get a chance to work on the, the subsequent sequels, he basically set the trend for how the film was going to be put onto the screen. Mm -hmm. Like he set up how the story was gonna be told. Um, and also in terms of the animation, it was pretty much the same exact thing. The guy who animated Treasure Planet also helped animate How to Train Your Dragon, which is probably exactly why the flying in this film looked so good. Mm -hmm. Because you couldn't really, like, there were very few films that nailed down what a dragon looks like when it's flying. And in this- Because you know, obviously. Yes, of course. <laughs> yeah, I, I, you, don't, you don't know these things? It's very simple. <laughs> yeah. But with How to Train Your Dragon, they made it look supernatural. Like, not literally supernatural, but literally super, super very natural. natural. <laughs> Uh, and, I mean, it was very sad because the films themselves looked amazing, but they had movie tie-in video games, mm -hmm. and they were awful. The, the flying was terrible. I only know this because of, I had friends at the time that the movies came out, and they would consistently complain to me all the time about how terrible it is. Uh, and and that's, that, that's just a curse of the, the movie tie-in game, though. Yeah. You can't really do movie, movie tie-in anything if the movie is good. It doesn't work. <laughs> and so... Yeah, the fact that the guy who did Treasure Planet also did this movie franchise didn't surprise me in the slightest that the animation was as good as it was. Because it, that's just how it is. When you know that you've got a guy who can nail down what it looks like to fly through the sky with the greatest of ease in 2D, then you throw him at a 3D project, you're going to get exactly what you're looking for. And so it was perfectly mastered. Uh, the guy's name who did it, by the way, Gil Zimmerman, which... A name like that, I would completely trust him with any project that I would throw at him. <laughs> um, now, what's interesting, actually, is that the, the editor, the primary editor, like film editor for the film, uh, has probably one of the most impressive backgrounds I've ever seen in my entire life. Like, of all the people that we've gone into, the people who helped create uh, Collateral Beauty, the guys who were behind Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, this person outshadowed, like, outshines all of them. It's a woman named, uh, I believe, yes, Marianne Brandon. And she has done, If I'm just gonna name a few. I tried to remember as many as I could, but I couldn't remember all of them. We've got Mission Impossible, Star Trek, Kung Fu Panda, Super 8, Star Wars, two of the episodes of Star Wars, and then both of the Venom movies, and now the upcoming Thor film. And she just does whatever she wants, basically. She's a fantastic film editor with a fantastic taste for what the director is looking for. She understands exactly what it is that a film is meant to be, which is something that a lot of film editors kind of miss out on. I think I've talked about before the lack of skill that was present in Bohemian Rhapsody when it comes to the editing. I, I, go, I could go on and on about the editing of Bohemian Rhapsody, but it was just, it, it was as if... You have gone on and on about the editing in <laughs> Bohemian Rhapsody Because before. it wasn't good! They took, <laughs> basically, the, the, the editor saw that there was a good story and decided to present it in the worst way possible. <laughs> By taking a story... We that, can have an episode on Bohemian Rhapsody some other time. We, I, I'm, I'm not done. So, <laughs> Bohemian Rhapsody has this issue, and I'm only presenting this because How to Train Your Dragon is the antithesis of this problem. Okay. Um, Bohemian Rhapsody basically takes a slow story and makes it super fast. 
But that's the that's an editor's job to yeah, set the pace know, for a film. I know you showed me the choppiness. Yes, uh, the 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 editor's job is to take a film and present it in the way that it is meant to be seen on screen. It's not the writer's job. It's not the director's job. The writer and the director have to sign off on it. But the editor is ultimately the person that will take the film and make it the way that it is. And this editor for Bohemian Rhapsody just decided to completely uh, just ruin it by pretty much taking all of these slow scenes and adding fast cuts, fast chops starting to make the audio go a little bit faster than it should have, make the dialogue go by super fast so we get to the part where we see Queen play at Live Aid in Africa. Like, that was fantastic. That was a great scene, but it, you burned through so much content that I can't remember a single thing. But with How to Train Your Dragon, they take their time. Even through some of the most intense scenes in the entire film, we are there for at least, like, at least like seven minutes just trying to take in everything that's happening. They'll have a proper buildup. They don't just let things pass by super fast. It's so well-structured, so well-written, that the editor was able to execute effectively storytelling without having to take away from any of the development. It was beautifully crafted, and I, I love that about this editor. Um, Putting aside the fact that I'm completely biased because she's editing Thor. Uh, <laughs> uh -huh. But the last thing, the most important thing in my opinion, uh, the person who did the art for How to Train Your Dragon, the person who set that style, the dragons being like cats, the, the world looking the way that it does with it being very grandiose in pretty much everything that you see. The islands are super big, the mountains are larger than life, the oceans are ridiculously detailed. The same person who did Road to El Dorado, and if you've ever seen Road to El Dorado, you will know that this person is an excellent, like, master class artist in setting the theme for a story for the rest of the entirety of the franchise. This person basically took what we knew as just what would happen if you put a boy and a dragon in the same room and then made them become friends. Took that and blasted the whole world with this massive amount of background lore and design and it took it so that now you're not just getting a story told, now you're living in that world and you're able to put yourself in the scene much more effectively because it's so ridiculously unique that not even the people that are trying to rip off the movie can effectively do it. They, uh, DreamWorks can't even rip themselves off. With that new show that they did, it's basically just a rip off of How to Train Your Dragon, it's just called Dragons. Uh -huh. it, uses, it uses the exact same art style except for the world. The world is completely different looking, but the dragons look the same, they're out of place. And it, it goes to show exactly what you need to be doing. You need to make sure that the art direction, the story, the editing, all of it has to come together so that you can tell an effective story. And that's kind of, <laughs> another reason why I kind of bring that up is because in the realm of storytelling, uh, we frequently will go back and forth on how storytelling is represented in certain media and then compare it to how the storytelling is presented in the Bible because the storytelling in the Bible is actually rather impressive. If you've, ever actually, if you've ever gone and read it, it's a really good read. I would recommend it. But the Bible does this fantastic thing of painting a picture in your mind all while telling you a story. It's not just about this specific character doing this specific thing. They'll give you location. They'll give you a time, sometimes even a time of day. They'll tell you exactly what's going on so you have an effective picture in your mind and then fit that small narrative into a larger narrative that fits into the overarching narrative. It's beautiful masterclass storytelling. So whenever you see those elements being incorporated into other creative projects, you can kind of start to see where those collateral creative aspects are actually being found. Mm -hmm. So, uh, by the way, the person who did the art direction for that, I'm, I'm going to do my best to not butcher his name, but I guarantee I will. It's Pierre-Olivier Vincent. And dude is a legend. Um, currently, he hasn't done anything in a long time, but he's coming back with an actual, actually he's coming back with a video game uh, tie-in called Puyo Puyo, but I don't know what that is. It sounds familiar, but uh, okay, she knows what it is. <laughs> so, uh, the, but he's been out of the game for a little while. He kind of stopped after the Crudes, which kind of makes sense because the Crudes was eh at best. Mm. I'm not ever going to do an episode on the Crudes. <laughs> but now that we've gotten the whole, you know, we ha we've figured out what the story is all about. We've gotten the explanations mm -hmm. of what the, act like, why does the story work so well because of the people that were behind it. Now we get to go into my, my absolute favorite part of the show is when do we see theology cross over into this story? I'm going to transfer that over to you because I feel like you got a lot more notes than me on that one. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, where to begin? I do have notes. <laughs> it's just which note to begin on. Um... Part of the reason I'm having difficulty like deciding what to start talking about is because How to Train Your Dragon and the entire franchise is 
a really personal movie for me just because of like some of the experiences I've had with it. Mm -hmm. Um, So I've brought up before on the podcast how I have a lot of chronic health issues. Um, And so for new people who are listening, like, hi, I have a lot of chronic health issues. Um, (laughs) And anyway, back when all of that first started, I had to get an MRI at um, Children's Mercy, so Kids Hospital. And the really cool thing that they do for kids MRIs, at least at that hospital, I don't know if it's consistent everywhere else, um, that they don't do at, like for adult MRIs mm-hmm. um, is they'll play movies to help the kids stay still. Yeah. And the movie that I got to pick was How to Train Your Dragon. Um, Now, I didn't have on my glasses, (laughs) so it was just like a blur the whole time, which is part of why I picked it, was like it was a movie I'd already seen and I didn't want to watch something that I hadn't seen. Sure, because you wouldn't be able to watch it. Yeah, because it would just be (laughs) audio, more or less. And so when you've more or less just like seen blurs and only listened to a movie, in a very stressful situation, you develop this relationship with it mm-hmm. in a really interesting way. And I think part of my like attachment to it also is because of a lot of the themes mm-hmm. in the movie that we haven't even touched on yet because it's not really relevant to the plot in the best way possible. Okay. The fact that Hiccup and Toothless are both disabled. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, beyond the initial, like, oh, no, I shot down the dragon and heard it. It can't fly away. Mm-hmm. That, like, makes it where they have to. Well, they don't have to, but, like, that's, like, what makes it where, like, Toothless and Hiccup start their friendship. Yeah. And beyond the scene where Hiccup loses his leg. Um there's not a ton of reference to the fact that, oh yeah, like they're, they have a disability. Um, and like, it doesn't play a huge role in the plot. Like, yeah, occasionally Hiccup will lose his leg and have to mm-hmm. like switch it out for a new one. Like he has different attachments. Cause or again, tooth- Toothless will fall in and he just can't <laughs> catch back. Cause yeah, he's falling. Like they play around with it. And that like goes back to their like cure nature as ver- being very curious and very inventive. And, other citizens on Burke, the island that they all live on, are also missing limbs <laughs> and have other things going on as well. And as someone who has chronic illness, that has always been something that I've been really drawn to mm-hmm. because it shows like, oh yeah, they're just normal people and they're having this really cool adventure. Yeah. And I think that's something that a lot of media lacks um, where you know, and people bring this up all the time where, like, we need to have more diverse media and more, mm-hmm. like, diverse job hiring and stuff. Yeah. And so I don't want that to be what this conversation is about political correctness and all of that stuff. Like, this isn't that conversation. <laughs> that is an important conversation. But more, like, how do we talk about groups that we may or may not belong to well? Mm-hmm. Like, how do we do that? Because there are times where in media we should include other groups that we don't belong to. Yeah. Um, like, let's see. For example, sometimes people will talk about other religions and mm-hmm. bring up stories of, oh, yeah, so, like, I was talking to a Muslim or an atheist the other day and use that as an illustration in a sermon. Mm-hmm. How you speak about that people group or that person is really important. Like, are you speaking about them in love or are you like, oh, yeah, they're other? <laughs> and that's really telling because you never know, like, oh, maybe there's someone who used to be in that category. Yeah. Or there's someone who is still in that category and they're just hap- they happen to be there that day. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you have any thoughts on well, uh, how I, to do that well, <laughs> since you're more the communications guy yeah. on like um, how we 
do media well, with other groups. Well, it's absolutely a challenge. It is probably one of the most difficult things to pull off. When you're trying to tell a story that incorporates complicated things like that, you have to take into account that your goal is not to insult anyone or try to show that you are the one that is the absolute correct like way of seeing it. That's why How to Train Your Dragon does it so well is that mm-hmm. they don't try to try to push it as they're good because they're disabled they're showing they're capable of living and doing their job and there's bad guys who are also missing limbs that's like the main like disability in the movie is the fact that they're missing limbs but that's because of the context of the world the fact that like they got like chomped on by a dragon exactly and and i think the person that rocks it the best is gobber the, yeah, that, awesome. Gobber was the uh, was the blacksmith of the of the whole tribe, and uh, he <laughs> he's the reason why Hiccup is as good as he is with technology. But he also I feel like he has an attachment for every single day of the week. <laughs> he's got all. Oh, sorts he of probably stuff. has more than one for every <laughs> single day of the week. And yes, in communications, it is one of the most difficult things to pull off. In fact, actually, right now, uh, me personally, I'm working on a project that is involved with showing Christian values to uh, Bangladeshi Muslims. And it's, it's a big challenge because we're trying to present it in such a way of saying, hey, from the perspective of their world, they, they like to call demons jinn. That's, that's their culture. Mm-hmm. So in this production, we're trying to show that Christianity has a solution, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has the power to go up against these evil jinn. We use their words, their language, their culture. Yeah, contextualization. Exactly, and that's probably the best thing to do whenever you're trying to make something that's in this realm. You're trying to contextualize it in such a way that it applies to the person who's watching, but doesn't make them feel less empowered or lesser than. Yeah, where you're not talking down to them, but like you're meeting them where they're at. Yeah, and like try to consider this for a second. How to Train Your Dragon not once tries to make you feel sorry for Hiccup or Toothless. Like, they'll be like, oh no, they lost a limb. But in the next scene, they're fixing the problem and they're immediately getting back up and getting back up and out there. Mm -hmm. And it's beautiful to see because then it's less of a focus. It's less of a, you know, let's make a movie about a crippled dragon that can't fly and a disabled uh, boy who has to use his peg leg to fly a disabled dragon. Yeah, and like, (laughs) Like, they rely on each other and like, this beautiful friendship yeah they focus on the friendship they focus they use it as a tool to explain how close they became it's not something that's that's just trying to make some sort of cop-out story about how tragic that sort of lifestyle can be because it's not always tragic yeah and i think that plays into like one of the other things i wanted to bring up Mm -hmm. with what we can learn from how to the how to train your dragon franchise Mm -hmm. Something that I've heard other people say as well, so it's not just a me thing, is that a lot of the time the church lacks a robust theology of suffering. Okay. Where when people are going through hard stuff, Mm -hmm. we don't know how to handle that, (laughs) Um, especially if it's long term. Like I'm praying for you. Yes. It's like, (laughs) oh, here, let's pray for you. Oh, you didn't get better? Uh, I'll pray for you. <laughs> yeah, I'll pray for you again. I must not have had enough faith or something. Which, yes, faith is important. Yes. And we're not discounting prayers. It's, it's faith even when God doesn't answer. Yeah. Because God always answers prayers. It's just sometimes the prayer is no or not yet. Yeah. <laughs> so it's not bad when the answer isn't yes yeah and i think people have a hard time accepting that um and the other thing too is the way that that makes the person who is on the receiving end of the prayers feel mm-hmm. where it's like oh i'm not getting better there must be something wrong with me yeah which i think that's where churches are kind of forgetting that i mean in- pretty much in almost every story about either a judge, a prophet, some main character in scripture, including Jesus, they, they are made and meant to suffer. Like that is part of their story. Yeah, suffering is 
talked about so much in the Bible and it's kind of a given for everyone. Mm-hmm. My mother back home actually, she has made a couple statements in the past um, where she always has something going on, something is going wrong. It's just, we're, our, Mur- our family is Murphy's, so we have the Murphy's Law and it applies to us absolutely and always. Mm-hmm. And every time that something goes wrong, she'll go, oh, the Lord must really love me today. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because and that's where she believes. That might be a little bit cynical because it's not that like God is like throwing down judgment. Oh, she's absolutely being yeah. silly. <laughs> it's more of a like, oh, you know, like God must love me. It's more of a like he's still with me. Yeah. Um even in my suffering, which I think is probably mm-hmm. like knowing your mom, like that's probably yeah. more what she yeah, means. Yeah, I, mean, I just want to clarify for your both listeners. Of, both of us like to make the comment every single time that something goes wrong, we'll go Jesus thinks he's funny. And it's, it's just part of the whole, like, acceptance of something going wrong. Because it, that's the one thing that we have to remember, is that even when something is going wrong, even when there is suffering, there is still someone who's sovereign watching it happen and isn't, ju- isn't just watching it going, yes, that's a, that is, I'm okay that you're suffering right now. There's not a single time where God says, yes, I'm happy that you're experiencing this right yeah. now. Well, and again, just to clarify, like, the, oh, he must think he's, like, he has a sense of humor thing. Yeah. It's not for entertainment or enjoyment. Like, he doesn't enjoy watching us suffer. Not even a little bit. And I think with How to Train Your Dragon, the reason why it reminds me of that so Mm -hmm. much is just because, first off, like I've already mentioned, the story isn't rooted in the fact that it's two disabled main characters. And so, like... Yes, that's influencing everything in the story, mm-hmm. but that's not the actual story. And so, like, just like with us, even though we have things that we go through that are super hard, that's not the main story. There is more to our story, and that's because of God. Yeah. And what's really fun is actually you can tie that into a lot of other aspects of the, of the film where it goes uh, in How to Train Your Dragon 2. These are even bigger spoilers, just to let you know to anyone who may not because want to hear this part. Because it's the sequel. It's the sequel. <laughs> so you're not only getting spoilers for the first one, this is, some, this is a big one. I mean, you uh, already spoiled the end of the third movie. It's so. all fine. It's called The Hidden World. I'm just saying. <laughs> but, the second... but it's still a spoiler. <laughs> in the second film... We end up getting a pretty much a, a crescendo on the story of Hiccup becoming a chief. Yeah. Um, in the fact that we that we once again see Hiccup going through suffering by watching his father die. His father sacrifices himself so that Hiccup can live. Watching that in the theaters was so rough. I, I heard a grown man, probably 45 years old, and in, and in my hometown, every man sounds like this. And he screamed, no. <laughs> because it's so tragic. Like, it's, you know, like, usually animated films that are aimed at kids kind of pull their punches. Every now and then. They they usually kind of pull usually. their punches. And that scene does not. Every now and then you get a How to Train Your Dragon 2 death scene. You get an Avatar <laughs> The Last Airbender in general. You get, you get yeah. all sorts of stuff and like that. And so that one is just really rough. Because yes. like the way it sets up, all of the like emotional context, it's just, it's a really good death scene, mm-hmm. but it's... <laughs> Good because of how much it hurts. But then you can see what happens after that. Yes. The int- like this whole point that we were talking about here is ho- this whole thing of you know Hiccup and Toothless both are disabled, but they can rise above and they get better because of it. Hiccup watches his father die, and also Toothless is the one that killed his dad. Like Toothless, while under the control of the main antagonist of the film, kills Hiccup's father. Yeah. And Hiccup almost immediately forgives Toothless. Like, he's mad at first, of course, but he works through it, and he's like, you weren't, that wasn't you. I know it wasn't you. It's fine. And so even when Toothless goes off and he's under my control, through the friendship, Hiccup is able to break Toothless out of that. Mm-hmm. And it's, I mean, uh, that part, that part, whenever, that part's <laughs> that the part, part where you want to cry. That's where I started crying, because I don't yeah. know what it is, their, their friendship is just, it's so, it's, to, for the lack of a better word, wholesome. It's just, yeah. it's lovely, and that's the whole thing. Even in the third film, Hiccup talks about having to move on beyond his father's death. He honors his father's death by becoming the chief, 
and leading Burke into a whole new realm, literally. And it's beautiful because that's a, that is pretty much like the main plot line. We're watching Hiccup start from a young boy who's a little bit of a coward, become one of the best and wisest what he's people doing. Yeah. in the second film, and then become the leader of the chief and the dragons in the third one. Like, that's, that's gorgeous. It's yeah, something it's amazing. So good. Yes. And to kind of like weave our way back to what we were talking about like with the theology of suffering and disabilities and all of that stuff which i know like we're focusing a lot on disability but that's because like that's it's a pretty big aspect of (laughs) a big aspect of the film in a way um but i think a lot of this could be applied to other groups like it could be applied to i or at least the ideas could be applied to stuff to do with like race or like language minorities and stuff like that um, so I don't remember who it was who said this. I think it might have been in one of the books that I read um, for my senior seminar paper that I did last semester, um, which was on the deaf community. Yeah. Uh, I just don't remember who said it. <laughs> um, it might have been a professor. Anyway, um, they were talking about how a lot of the time, with disability ministry, which already a lot of churches don't have disability ministry. That is ridiculous to me. (laughs) Um, Yeah. (laughs) Um, Considering, like, statistics and stuff, a lot of the time churches don't have disability ministries. Um, They also don't have disabled leaders in the church. They're not equipping... um, people who, with disabilities to be leaders, like spiritual leaders. Mm-hmm. And that is a huge difference as well because there's a difference between here, let me talk at you mm-hmm. and here, let me like partner with you. Yeah. And there's so much that we can learn from like the disability community. There's so much we can learn from all communities about who God is because that's one of the strengths of the body of Christ is that the rest of the body has (laughs) different roles and like those roles teach us things Mm -hmm. like um again this is like the intercultural department I don't remember who was (laughs) (laughs) who what class who said it talking about how African believers have different views on the theological concepts especially like with family dynamics and other things and that's also true with um, Asian believers and so like different countries need to talk to each other Mm -hmm. about different theological ideas because like the western or like in the United States we tend to like get in a rut Mm -hmm. (laughs) of like okay this is the way we do theology here's what we believe but like we don't look at other perspectives and Mm -hmm. like a lot of those perspectives are really good and broaden our understanding of god in such a beautiful way Mm -hmm. and we miss out on what like who god is by Mm -hmm. not including other people and so like this kind of like ties stuff together with a hopefully nice little bow (laughs) of how how we need to like include people in media and have a robust theology about suffering and other issues like regarding all of this so that we can learn from them Mm -hmm. and uh, to put it in a kind of cheesy way think about how well toothless and hiccup worked together whenever they were brought together to go up against a common goal the friendship the friendship But I, I will say, the church is certainly getting better at that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, there's been many times where I've seen certain churches make, make certain decisions to either cross their, their congregations together, which can, it can be a, a good or bad thing. Usually mm-hmm. when you try to collide two different congregations together, it can cause a little bit of a, a discourse. Uh, I actually remember my church back home before it was shut down. Do you mean dissonance? Uh, yes. Dissonance, but it not can discourse. Ca- it can cause like discourse. Discourse is a conversation, mine, but dissonance. Mine started discourse. 
Okay. That was the way. That was the way that it happened. Uh, we tried to cross over our church with another church because our congregation members were going low. We had probably ten people attending, but that was mostly because of old age. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we crossed over with a younger church, and half of them left the church because they didn't want to to leave their building. They didn't want to like mix their congregation in with how we do things. They immediately just split off and made a whole new church. And some people stuck around because they liked the way that we do things, but that's just kind of the way that it goes. The reason why we have so many different kinds of churches is because we have so many different kinds of experiences. So I don't think at any point we should expect that every church will one day accept the same things and work with the same stuff because they do have their own communities. Yeah, Um, and there is a struggle in that, though, because we are called to be a unified body. mm -hmm. So A a unified body, yes, but I would also, I I would try to add in that perhaps the best thing is not to try to push all of these different cultures together into one building, but to let these buildings be separate and then let those cultures interact with each other naturally. Mm -hmm. So don't lock down your church to just one block. Like, let your people go out there and do ministry around the city. Get to know other churches. Like, let that church be the church for that specific people group or that specific culture, and then let that church go out and talk to other churches. And maybe those congregation members will go back and forth between the different churches. Yeah, and I think there is some, like, inter-church relational stuff that we a lot of times aren't aware of. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure there's more, like, there's more to it than what we're aware of, like, issues and solutions like oh, we're not certainly. we're not going to be able to solve like no church unity <laughs> we're talking and about the problems here we're not talking about the solution we're just pointing at it and being like this would be nice if we could fix it and it is a very it is an issue with certain churches i don't i wouldn't be able to name any names but there are churches who have gone out of their way to specifically choose to never leave their doors to never interact with the outside world because they're terrified that satan is going to get inside which a reasonable worry with having the enemy get their way into your church. Yeah. But by locking your doors, you're basically locking him in. Like, that's that's the thing you got to be yeah. worried about. Because, you know, what is... Well, it? and that's just, like, ignoring the Great Commission and Very all Very much that. so. Get out there and talk to people about the gospel. And Which you don't always have to be a goer. You can also be a sender. But, exactly. Uh-uh. But even then, it should be something that's like you should be proud to say that you are a Christian, that you believe that Jesus Christ came and died for your sins, and that you know exactly what it is that you're here yeah, doing. Yeah, like boast in the gospel. Yeah, so like thing. you don't need to go out and, and, and cross the entire ocean. If you're called to do that, if God has led that to you, then that is fantastic. Go out there with confidence that you have been called for the right thing. But if you are also called to be here, working in some sort of company or some sort of organization, even something that's completely secular go in i think i think professor perez puts it in the best way possible go out as a roaring lamb you are you're working in a secular environment but you carry the passion the knowledge and the wisdom in the word and you will say that proudly and i think that's kind of funny that we talk about you know trying to get people to see things that way because um, if we're going to tie it back to How to Train Your Dragon, just think about how long it took for Hiccup to go out into the, into the various uh, tribe people and be like, hey, dragons are pretty neat. <laughs> I yeah. Think, I think our culture would be a whole lot better with dragons everywhere, wouldn't it? And in our case... And everyone's be... like, no, nah, we're still going to kill dragons. And in, and in our culture and society, wouldn't it be great if Christians were everywhere? Yeah, but we're still going to go and do our own thing. Mm-hmm. And it's, that's just that, like, that's just the It takes time to change people's minds. Yes. And, and more, more importantly, their hearts. Yeah. Because that's another thing that How to Train Your Dragon shows really well. Yeah. And, I, and it's, kind of, it's kind of interesting, too, because you do have common enemies that they will end up forming up against pretty frequently. Um, like the, the, what was it, the red dragon that was in charge of all the other dragons. that He had kept them in oh, such the a... Death? The Red Death, yeah, that yeah. had that had kept them, they kept the dragons in so much fear. That was why they were taking livestock in the first place because they had to feed the Red Death, or else they would get eaten. Yeah, and that just shows that sometimes you don't know the full context exactly. behind what why people are actually doing what they're doing. Yeah, like why why would this person be apprehensive about talking to a Christian? What sort of experiences have they had in the past that makes them apprehensive? There's always, there's usually never a time where someone just doesn't like something for the sake of not liking something unless they're a young teenager. (laughs) 
But even then, it's even probably then, the hormones. There's something in there. There's something else <laughs> that's driving that. So it's just something to keep in mind that How to Train Your Dragon does push this idea very well of keeping in mind that there are perspectives you have to take into account. There's a goal that you are going to be pushing for no matter whether or not you're suffering or if someone else is suffering around you, there is a goal for you to be moving towards and that there's always some sort of overarching plot. Even if it's not in your life, you are in currently a overarching plot in Christianity. Mm-hmm. Where you're end, part of God's story. Yes, you know what the end game is. We already know what that story is. I, yeah. That's not a Marvel reference. That's a normal word that you use. <laughs> it's, just, <laughs> it's end game, okay? <laughs> but now we have, uh, we've come to the, the time where we will open up the floor for Q&A if anyone has any questions regarding either the How to Train Your Dragon franchise, what we're saying here about the show, or simply Collateral Creatives as a whole. Um, otherwise, we're just going to keep on talking about How to Train Your Dragon because we're massive fans of this whole thing. So, <laughs> All right, well, so with How to Train Your Dragon, I'm just going to go into the plot because okay. uh, because we're, we got about uh, eight, no, seven more minutes to kill. So I'm gonna <laughs> say real quick about regarding the plot. Uh, the third one wasn't that good. I'm I'm being compl- no, Listen, listen, <laughs> listen. The third one had some good ideas. The third one was entertaining to some degree, but in terms of how impactful the plot was, it felt like the antagonist came out of nowhere with no backing. Uh, and okay. the so <laughs> yes and i'm not interrupting you but like <laughs> yes i am interrupting you but <laughs> like one of the really redeeming qualities of that i see in the third movie is that okay so i know it's kind of bad to compare movies maybe it isn't <laughs> I, don't think, I don't think so at all so a trend that i had started to notice with animated films mm-hmm. around the time that How to Train Your Dragon 3 came out. Yeah. It, like, so Frozen 2 and Toy Story 3. Four. Oh, four. Yeah, yeah. that was four. Um, yeah, can't count. <laughs> <laughs> so, to spoil those ones, <laughs> just as a warning, um, the way they end... Like, mm-hmm. they have their plot, and it's, like, pretty normal as far as, like, kids' movies go. And then they're like, I'm going to go and do my own thing and be wild and free, essentially. <laughs> like, that's that the plot. That is pretty much, like, uh, oh, gosh, Toy, bit, Toy Story 4's ending. Ah, oh, gosh, I hate that ending. Yeah, exactly. Uh, like, as someone who grew up on the Toy Story movies, it was like, Woody did what? <laughs> it looked beautiful, and then the ending hurt me. It hurt so much. It, and, but not in a good way. It's bad hurt. It, yeah, it was a bad hurt. <laughs> <laughs> and Frozen 2 also did that, but that it didn't really hurt that much because it's Frozen. Not that I really which, cared about Frozen in the first place. And it's because there's like not that emotional attachment there with yeah. Frozen. But they had that trend of, okay, we're going to have like this strong, independent character go off and do their own thing. So I was really, really scared when oh. <laughs> Hiccup and Toothless were getting separated and were going to go off and do their own thing. And I'm like, this better not be <laughs> another Toy Story 4, Frozen 2. You got to go live your own life, bud. Yeah, you got to go be on your own, <laughs> do your own thing. And it actually wasn't. It wasn't. It wasn't. (laughs) And so, like, yes, there are flaws with the third movie, but it didn't fall into that trend that (laughs) kids' movies have these days, which, like, it's really subtle in other movies as well, where, like, they're trying to, like, get this message of, like, go be yourself. Mm -hmm. Um... And, like, yeah, maybe there were some sprinkles of it, but, like, it stayed true to the franchise. It did. And the way that it, like, echoed the same scenes, and I think that was I, really good. It, w- it, was a good. it was a good movie, but I think if we're going to talk about How to Train Your Dragon's themes, especially regarding what we're talking about now with Theology of Suffering, How to Train Your Dragon 2 is one of the best animated films of all time. Especially given it's how... It's such a good sequel. It's a really good <laughs> sequel. Um, but it's more tied into every single antagonist is doing what they're doing because of some form of suffering. It's introducing the idea of whatever it is you choose to do because of your suffering is your own choice. You are not just born evil. You're not born good. Mm-hmm. You are built by whatever actions that you decide to take out of your pain. 
So let's say with Bloodfist, the, the main antagonist of How to Train Your Dragon 2, hurt by a dragon, decided to hurt them back in order to take control of them and used fear to control them. But fear was not as strong as respect. And so when... And friendship. And friendship. <laughs> but when Hiccup decided to use respect and friendship to get the dragons back in control, he ended up being in control of one of the most powerful dragons of all time that we did not realize until he started glowing blue. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, did you know you could glow blue? And I was like, no, I didn't even know about the little, like, scale flappy things yeah, on the my things, back. The, the ailerons that are built into his spine. <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, How to Train Your Dragon 2, just thematically, and especially in art design, like, yes, the third movie looks technically better, like, with the, how the technology is working. Also, like, grown-up hiccup. Grown-up hiccup. <laughs> grown-up hiccup. Still, still sounds like a little boy, but he's still... Like, he's, he's built. He's got it all back up. <laughs> uh, I, I think, like, the first one is not the weakest. I still think the third is the, is the weakest. Yeah, third is... I, I would definitely say third is the weakest. But yes. I wouldn't say it's a letdown. In, in some ways, it let me down. But... Yeah. Not uh, that's only in the way of theming. After it let suffering. me down that it ended. <laughs> <laughs> but the the second one, most certainly, I think that especially in terms of what we're talking about today with theology yeah. of suffering. Uh, how to Train Your Dragon 2 hits so many notes so perfectly on how we should see suffering as something that's not something that we can just be, that we can only say, oh no, how sad, that we can actually do something about it. Yeah, and, and we can move beyond it. And we and can use it. Yeah. Like using suffering. That's something that not many people think about, is that you, you can actually use someone that is out, like actually, in fact, we both operate this student group called Frontlines. And out or there in the streets, we did. Now we did. Now, now we're graduating, <laughs> now we're but graduating. we did. But out there on the streets, there, there have been so many times where someone on those streets was able to use what they experienced as a way to teach me something about theology. Yeah, and that's, same. That's just I, just, I can't talk enough about the, the theology of suffering, how powerful suffering can be. There's a reason why it's a central theme yeah. in the Bible. And maybe because it's so big as an idea maybe that's why it's so hard to talk about Probably. because like people don't know where to start but we should start somewhere but you know what it might be difficult to talk about but we did talk about it for a full hour we try so we're gonna wrap up here but for everyone who is interested we are collateral creatives our show going into talking about non-christian media and finding aspects of god within it you can find us on places like spotify apple music so on and so forth and if you wish to reach out to us to either get i give us your ideas on what we can talk about or present questions to us we always love getting messages from you guys you can email us at ccmoody22 at gmail.com that's ccmoody22 at gmail.com thank you very much Thank you.